Hello, everyone. This is Nice Work, a Super Nice Club podcast. This is episode number two, so if you're listening, you're an early adopter. Thank you. The Super Nice Club has a simple mission. We're going to make the world 10% nicer. If you're listening to this, you just got jumped into the club. Welcome. You're about to drop in for a wide-ranging discussion with award-winning actor, writer, producer, musician, legend, Cario Salem. You've probably seen Cario in nearly a hundred television and movie roles, and there's a good chance you've seen at least one of the films that he's written. At age 60, he's just launched his very first band, an indie rock super band, with members from The War on Drugs, Father John Misty, Vampire Weekend, and Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. It's an amazing crew. Here's the thing. Cario has already had two successful careers and his share of life-changing challenges. And now he's decided to take the biggest risk of his life and trade in the sure money and the stability to go hard after the passion that he's had to push down and try to ignore for decades. We'll talk about that. We'll also get into sleep deprivation, the power of a morning routine, surfing, how Bob Dylan and Yoko Ono became champions of Cario, and I think most significantly, the tragic mistake of ignoring your first love and passion. And the reminder that it is never too late, that you can always find that passion. And if that isn't super nice, nothing is. So now let's talk to super nice Cario Salem. Hello, super nice people. I'm Todd Brilliant, your host. And joining me and you is our guest, the multi-talented Cario Salem. Cario, thank you for giving us your time and being on the show today. It's super nice to have you with us. And it's super nice to be with you. How's your day today? And if you, what's your biggest accomplishment so far besides waking up? <laughs> well, waking up is never my biggest accomplishment. Going to sleep is my biggest accomplishment. Ooh. And uh, I have to say, last night I slept pretty well, which is not easy for me. It's a whole procedure. It's a whole ritual to, uh, um, you know, sort of overcome my whatever creative anxiety, you know, all that pixelation going on in my brain um, every night. Uh-huh. And uh, So, so you, you go to bed with work on your mind is what you're saying. Well, I think, I think yeah, I, I try not to. I try to watch something funny. I try to, you know, uh, watch something that I've seen many times before like a modern family or a Seinfeld to just kind of at very low volume, just to kind of start another conversation in mm-hmm. my mind. Like, mm-hmm. like in other words, cancel out the conversation I'm having in my own head right. and replace it with a conversation, uh, you know, written by uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Larry David or, <laughs> or uh, Levitan and Lloyd or, you know, some of the greats. And I, and so what happens is I get, I know the sleep specialists say don't watch TV before bed, but I think that's bullshit. It doesn't work. Uh, reading doesn't work because I spend all day in front of a computer, you know, or reading and stuff. So yeah. I find it just to laugh a little bit quietly and, and sort of slowly but surely drift off with the help of a couple of edibles and a, a few hits of some very, um, uh, powerful uh, indica hybrid and I'm usually good to go but when I'm in real creative anxiety mode mm-hmm. when, I'm, when I'm nervous when I'm stressed when I have a deadline sleep is a it's a it's a battle with a, a big bad villain uh, packing some real some swords 
<laughs> some heavy guns and weapons while as I stand naked in the snow with nothing but my bare hands. I mean, it's not a fair fight, in other words, right? So, Yeah, that's, that sounds grim. It sounds like, I mean, I might want to be afraid of going to sleep. Well, sometimes, I mean, I think any fellow insomniacs out there, I mean, I'm not an insomniac in the, in the clinical sense. And the insomnia in the clinical sense is, you know, just an inability to sleep. But I think every, all creative people, struggle with sleep musicians like myself and uh, you know you get a loop inside your head mm -hmm. you have a um a melody inside your head man it's it's you know all the great musicians who have been on tour they can tell you how tough it is to sleep and they start reaching for drugs and that's where that's where it becomes really dark um i know for you know. me i i felt like and i've sort of exercised this a little bit but to going to bed, I would have all these thoughts. Like, here's what I want to do. Oh, here's a great idea. Here's a great idea. Here's what I want to do in the morning. And so having a notepad, you know, by the bed was, was mm -hmm. really powerful until the phones came along and then I could just lean over and hit record or, or set a memo. Do you do anything like that? I don't. I used to as a kid, but I don't anymore because for me, creativity is office work. It's what I do for a living. It's, right. it's me getting up ritually, getting the cup of coffee, sitting in my chair, preparing myself for a couple of hours of, of hard, intense work, uh, you know, interrupted by all sorts of little rewards that I give myself to overcome the, um, you know, the, the loneliness of the long distance running that goes with any creative process. So I, you know, I give myself a lot of rewards. Like, okay, now I get to have breakfast. Now I get to watch a little morning Joe. Now I get to go mm -hmm. outside and exercise for five minutes. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, all these things that I give myself to sort of make, to break up the day, to make it a mountain that I can scale in small pieces, as opposed to standing at the bottom of the sheer cliff and knowing that I got to make it up in one, uh, in one go. Does that make sense? Oh, it absolutely makes sense. I am really bad at that. I keep trying to come up with sort of a ritual or routine in my mornings, you know, wake up, stretch, I go grab tea. That's my first thing. And while the tea is cooling, I actually uh, set an alarm to read for 15 minutes. It usually stretches to 20 or 30 minutes, but well, that's, yeah, at least that's that way I get, I churn through books, you know, 15 minutes, that's 15 to 20 pages or so that I know that I'm going to check off each day and then well, that's done, smart because not not to interrupt you but what's cool about that is that if you give yourself small increments like that you know sooner or later it really adds up i mean in, in anyone who's sitting down to write a novel or write a screenplay or write whatever not a song i think songs can take some more time every now and then but mostly it's um music is so self-fulfilling and and it's so much fun to do that it, it doesn't feel like work but actually sitting down and breaking a story or whatever if you just do if you you know a lot of times people give they give themselves too great a task and then they wind up getting frustrated and they, they stop they give up but if you give yourself you know a shorter amount of time mm -hmm. preferably in the mornings before the noise starts to you know overcome you the flood of the world and all all of the responsibilities that we all yeah, have. that's when your structure falls apart. You can have a, a routine apart. in the morning, but good luck carrying that through the day, at least for me. Well, you have to, you know, you have to demand it. I mean, you have to mm -hmm. demand, the world demands a lot from us, but you have to demand something from the world too. And part of that is you can't, you're not going to take it seriously unless you shut the world out and then you allow yourself that precious time. If you so, don't and you keep allowing the world to intercede, it, it's not really serious, is it? Mm-hmm. No, that's, a, that's, a, that's well put. And 
Right now, I'm going to make a recommendation for you. Uh, a book just came out from a friend of mine, B.J. Fogg. He's a behaviorist at uh, uh, Stanford, and his book is called Tiny Habits. He has really deconstructed how to create new habits successfully. There's a lot of books on uh, being efficient, making habits, but this guy really has it down to a science. And, and what, a lot of what you're saying is a lot of what he preaches. One thing that I'll just get across right here that is such a cool little plus one is he, he reminds us that every time we do our thing, let's say um, I have 15 minutes is up and I'm done reading, right? That, celebrate it. Celebrate that with something, with a fist pump, with a heck yeah, just a small minor endorphin kicker. And not forget to celebrate those small, tiny habits and tasks throughout the day. Yes, then, I think what's good about that is that you're actually, you know, you're rewarding yourself. The celebration is kind of a reward. You're saying, hey, I, I, I made a decision. I've mm-hmm. carried out the decision. I completed the task. And, you know, it's so easy to get negative about oneself um, in the world. And uh, so I think those kinds of um, uh, protocols are really healthy. I agree. So let's dive in and try to uh, just unpack you a little bit here. We'll start with your professional work and uh, then do like a full psych evaluation a little bit later on. <laughs> um, okay. So, and correct me Good here, you know, um, you've worked, you've worked over the years at, at, as a, as an, an actor, a screenwriter, a producer, um, and now you're a full-time musician with a hot new record EP. It's amazing, um, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on. We're going to talk about a lot. You've had a million film and TV roles. You've won Emmys, worked with the biggest stars and directors. So where did all of this start for you? What was your, what was your original passion? Kind of take us through a quick overview of how you ended yeah. up having such a diverse career. Well, my, yeah, I think it's probably because I made a couple of mistakes in terms of understanding my own true self. But um, I was always, my first passion has always been music. And I was sitting in the pit at uh, high school playing the guitar for Elvis in Bye Bye Birdie. You know that character, if anybody knows the show. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I saw how much love this guy was getting on stage at, in high school and how many chicks he was getting. And <laughs> I, was, I was in the pit playing guitar, and that was pretty cool, you know. And where I mean, was I, this? New York? Uh, no, this was L.A. This was L.A. Oh, okay. We traveled oh, all over York. the world. Right, right. Okay. I grew up, I was born in L.A., then we moved to New York, then San Francisco, then I spent a year in Europe, and then we came back uh, to the sticks. Now it's just this big, wealthy neighborhood of, you know, um, you know, billionaires. This is a little place that I don't need to even mention, but it's, uh, but back then it was like horse flies and, uh, and weeds. Um, and I had just come from Paris with my family, so I was, it was a huge culture shock. But I started playing, I started writing songs before I had an instrument. I, start, I wrote my first song in Geneva at the age of 10. Lyrics, wow. melody, wow. everything. And, um, but I didn't, you know, my hands were still small. And I, was, I tried the clarinet, but I didn't have the right bite for that. So I'm, God knows you can't sing and play the clarinet at the same time. Or if you can, I, I've never seen anyone do it. It's the only instrument uh, I've ever played. Clarinet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I picked up the guitar, and and uh, so that was first love, first uh, number one. But then mm-hmm. I found acting on stage to be something that came naturally to me, and I started getting lead roles in the school plays, and it was so easy and so much fun, and I loved the camaraderie, and I had a band, and I had different things that I was doing, but I was always doing a lot of things. I mean, I think that. For me, that's a, that's a blessing and it's a curse. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the people who succeed the most in this life are not necessarily renaissance 
you know, in the sense that they're doing multiple disciplines. And, you know, usually it's, it's, I got one thing I can do, and if I don't do it, I'm going to die, right? Hmm. And, and, you know, it's like, what was Bruce Springsteen's fallback plan? Now, he had none, yeah. right? He was right. either going to become a rock star, he was going to work in a steel mill, right? Now, that's the way he looked at it. You know, now obviously he's a brilliant guy, so who knows what he might have conjured had things not gone his way. With me, it was like acting came so easily, and as soon as I got out of high school, I was getting, it was at a point in music in the um, 70s where I kind of lost faith in the direction that music was taking. And um, I, it was getting into disco, it was getting into all that shit. But acting, as soon as I did my, my graduated high school, I went to Juilliard and suddenly I had an agent and I had acting gigs. And they just were just took off. Yeah, they were paying me yeah. real money. I was doing guest star after guest star after guest star. And, you know, it was, it was easy. And I think that that ease, that ease actually undermined my music. And then I made a, a critical mistake. Um, I got married very young to a Swedish girl who I, you know, we're still very close friends, um, but I was not, it was not the right move at the right time. The only way for us to be together with a green card and all that crap was to have her come to California and, and we got married and it really derailed me because suddenly I, we had a house, I had, I had a wife, I had, it just felt like the music stuff that I needed to do that would keep me up till three in the morning, that would get, keep me in the clubs, that would, you know, fuel that dream was, some, was antithetical to what she needed, right? She needed mm-hmm. stability. She was in a foreign country. And so I kind of pushed all of it aside, much to the detriment of my music, and then ultimately even to the detriment of my, of my acting career because I lost, I don't know, that certain edge. It was, it was just, without getting too deep, mm-hmm. too deep down this rabbit hole it just i made some wrong moves and then we got divorced and i needed to get my acting career rolling and again i didn't um think that music was really open to me quite yet so i i took my guitar with me and i started doing all these plays and i was in dallas doing the the premiere of a new uh play i was the star of and uh, because i moved back to new york i needed to get the hell out of la i've always Mm -hmm. been essentially a new yorker so um, I was doing this play, and it was very successful. I did it in three different places, New York, Baltimore, and Dallas. But then I would play the guitar, and I would play my songs for the cast, and they would all have the same reaction. They would say, well, what the why fuck? Aren't you, why aren't you playing music? Why aren't you playing music? Yeah. And it was almost like a bell rang in my brain, and I, I thought, well, I don't have a good answer for that. And... Um, so I think that's I something started, a lot of people can relate to, you know, even in different careers when they follow the realistic and the pragmatic. I mean, in your case, it's a really exciting career for a lot of people, right? Well, none Acting. Of it was <laughs> yeah. But yeah. a lot of people are, are thinking, here's what I would love to do and I'm really good at, but what I really need to do to, to make the money is this, you know, and they can go their whole lives always sort of regretting the decision number one, which is why I'm so interested in your story because as you'll learn, everyone who's listening, Cario gets back to the original passion. Um, and that's, I think it's too rare. And it's something where hopefully when you're done listening to this, you'll feel more, uh, you'll have more, you'll feel like you have a little more permission to re-explore some of these things that you may have sort of ignored. Yeah. 
I want to go back to something I was talking about with Bruce or, you know, others uh, and, and this idea of, of doing something where you have no trampoline, you have no rope, you have no net. And, and it really concentrates the mind in, in a way that's critically important to the act of original creation. And I think that for me, I was lazy. Um, uh, acting came so easily to me. I could work Anytime I wanted, I wasn't getting, I was getting really good roles in the theater. I played a lot of bad guys on television and, and uh, television was not in its golden age as it is now. Now, how old so, were you at this time? Just to give some color. 20s. I think you need to have, in order to get that special edge of, of only being able to do one thing and being obsessed with one thing. And it forces you now to, you know, dive deep into chord progressions and dive deep into, uh, you know, production and dive mm-hmm. deep into theory and all of these things that, that um, I think that all the great musical artists do. And they either do it naturally or they do it purposefully. And I think most of them oftentimes will tell you, well, you know, I just worked harder than everyone else. It, mm-hmm. it, and I think that's sometimes true but with me it was like oh i can act when i need money or i can do this when i or i'm gonna go they're gonna pay me uh to act in this film and i'm gonna be in poland for four months and then i'd leave my band behind it was just things that were working across purposes but when i got back from to new york after doing this play i decided to go to his into a, a recording studio which Believe it or not, I had never been in a real recording studio. I had always, since high school, just played small clubs, but I, I'd recorded demos, but not the not real stuff, you know, just kind of fly-by-night shit. And I finally went in and we started to make these, this, these songs with some young uh, uh, musicians. And suddenly I had showcase for Polygram and for Sony and for Universal Music. And I came really, really, really close, hmm. but no cigar. And so now I'm in New York, I, I'm just turning 30, and I'm already considered too old for rock and roll, which is crazy, considering mm-hmm. that I'm 30 years older now, and um, now finally back at it. But um, it's, it was just nothing quite, I, create, I had a little following in New York, and I was acting, but again, the acting would take away from the music. I'd go off and do this television thing, or I, I, I did a film in Poland for four months. I did a film in Spain, 1492, with Gerard Depardieu, the Ridley Scott mm-hmm. uh, directed. And that, again, Love all Ridley of it Scott. was constantly taking me away from the one thing that I did better than anything else, even though I'm a pretty good actor. It was mm-hmm. just like, Acting to me was just sitting around waiting for the phone to ring and for some much more powerful person who wasn't necessarily as smart as you to tell you to stand over there or to do this or do that. It was a kind of emasculating and ultimately the emasculation, that feeling of emasculation of being an actor, Mm -hmm. short of being a superstar, you know, we're gypsies, you know, you just kind of feel like you're at someone else's beck and call. And it was, it was taking my power away it was taking my soul away it was mm. i was on broadway you know wow. co-starring on broadway um and i all i could think about every night on stage was i got to get to the club so i can play i i i could give a flying you know what i'm on stage in front of i'm exactly where every actor wants to be i'm on a magnificent stage on broadway with 1200 people in the audience and I would rather be somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And that's when I 
actually started to become a better actor because I no longer had that angst uh, to prove myself. And I just started to relax and just be, just be the vessel for the storyteller that all great actors truly are. And, but it, at the time that I had completely lost interest. So wow. cut two, I'm playing, you know, we opened for the spin doctors in New York. We had, I had some fans, I had all sorts of stuff going on, but still no, no love from the record companies. And I was getting to the point where I had to grow up. I mean, I had to make a real living and I had to make a choice. What am I going to fucking do here? with my life. I'm living, uh, my, my wife, my now wife and I were, uh, just getting together then. And, and, and we're living on a mattress on the floor, you know, with no box spring. And, and at, at a certain point in your early thirties, your mid thirties, you're like, well, this is not the life of an adult brother. You know, you gotta, you have to start manning up here. And I know manning up isn't the most politically correct phrase. So forgive me. Oh, we get you. We get you. Yeah. What I want to do right now is take a quick break, though, to give a shout out to our sponsors. Yes. That's a podcast thing. Is that cool? All right. Ready yeah. for that? All right. Okay. Let's shout them out. Here we go. The Nice Work Podcast is sponsored by the thousands of members of the Super Nice Club <laughs> all over the world. They're doing their best to make the world 10% nicer. So if you want to join and meet them, all you have to do is follow Super Nice Club on your favorite social media platform. So, I mean, we don't really have any sponsors. I made that up, but it's kind of cool, right? Oh, you will. Totally. You should. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we're back. Fast forwarding a little bit, you become an amazing writer. Well, you know, I'd always been writing short stories. I'd been writing songs, but I didn't think my songs were always subjective. I, I was unsure whether or not I had the objectivity necessary to be a screenwriter. And really, screenwriting was my fallback plan. I mean, screenwriting sounds like a crazy thing to say. That is but crazy, I, especially with the, the level of success that you've had. Well, it's, but it is, it is exactly that. I, had, I was still acting to, to make a little bit of money, but I lost interest. I, I had my last showcase for Sony Music. That fell through. I didn't mm -hmm. get the, the deal that I was hoping for. And now I'm suddenly I'm broke. And my friends are telling me, listen, you're a good writer. You should write a screenplay. So I spent a year with the help of a couple of my friends in the industry, you know, who one one or two in particular who coached me on the script, and I worked on it on and off while I was still acting. And that script is what got me to um, a writer producer named Josh Brand, who is famous for being an award winning co-creator of Saying Elsewhere and uh, Northern oh, wow. Exposure and I'll Fly Away. And he read the script. He was a friend of a friend and he read the script, which is, you know, amazing enough that anyone reads anything because as any writer out there in the Super Nice Club universe will tell you, it's hard to get people to read. Yep. Um, so he read it and he, he didn't want to do it because uh, it wasn't, it was kind of a gangster, kind of young gangster thing. It wasn't really for him, but he really liked the writing. And he said, what else you got? Pitch me something. I did. Suddenly I, I had a, a, a Writers Guild scale job for Warner Brothers writing an original love story that I came up with that I was going to do, do with him. And so next thing you know, I'm, I've got a career. Because You're a writer, my, yeah. My third, that script almost got made, but didn't, uh, which is, as any writer will tell you, um, the, the sad sob story that every, you know, all writers have. I mean, the, the numbers of films, the numbers of scripts that we pour our hearts and souls into that sit on the shelf, never to be realized on the screen is, you know, far outflanks the one, the few that, that actually get made. Right. But so three years later, I, or two years, only two years later, my third script 
actually was Don King only in America and I won an Emmy and a Peabody for that. And suddenly, boom, I have right. a career and I'm not acting anymore. And I don't even pick up my guitar because every time I pick up the fucking guitar, it makes me sad. Right. Right. I'm like, this is my passion. And now I'm doing this thing that I'm pretty good at and people are paying me real money to do it. So God bless them. But mm -hmm. I didn't pick up my guitar for maybe 10 years. Now, did and screenwriting feel closer to playing music than acting? Or was it? Was no, it, no, no, okay. but, but there, but, but it didn't feel, no, they're, they're such separate distinct disciplines, but I will say this, the, the thing about acting and music that really informs screenwriting. And I was blessed with that, with that information was that as an actor, you're always thinking about your motives, your behavior, props, what you need in a scene, what the other actor, you know, they're all of that stuff, which is really important. Most writers don't know what acting is, right? They don't know what it means to be on stage. They don't know what it means to have dialogue coming out of their mouths. And mm -hmm. so that really helped. But the music part, music, the sort of structure, the sort of instinctual idea of a verse leading to a chorus, leading to a bridge, mm -hmm. the, the, the need for movement, even if you don't understand what the movement is or should be, you just know you need it. Right. And sometimes the structure in music makes you smarter than you really are. Because if you think about it, once you come up with a, with a rhyming structure, once you come up with a musical progression and you commit to that progression, it forces you to think in new ways in order to solve the lyrical problems or to come up with a chorus that really soars or all of that. And in screenwriting, it's the same thing. When you get to a certain point in the structure, you realize, you know, this is too static. I don't know where to go. I don't know what to do, but I know I have to do it mm -hmm. because there's a, you just feel it. You feel the need for rhythm. Right. And, and so those two things really helped me um, jump the queue, as it were, as a screenwriter, to the point where I was able to get to a very sort of top echelon place much more quickly than most because so I had that other experience. You worked as an actor, successful, screenwriter, very successful. Now you're doing music. And I, I know that you're a huge advocate, a massive advocate for social justice and, and the basic concept of um, fairness, shall we say, in the world. And I know that you have a, a, a really a vehement distaste for any situation where there's oppressor-oppressed dynamic, right? Yep. Do you yep. find that in, in any of these works of these careers that one aligns the most with your views of a nicer world? Or if not quite, maybe there's a better way to put it is one of those give you more power to express yourself? Well, listen, I mean, the problem is with screenwriting is that you need millions and millions of dollars and teams of 100 people and massive entities to get behind your creation in order for it to, to achieve its true purpose, which is to become a film. Yes, they'll pay you to write it, um, and, but then the heartbreak truly gets underway because you know you there are so many obstacles people don't realize when they go see a movie that they love how much was behind it how much luck you know i always describe it as baking a souffle in new york and carrying it like a baton three thousand miles across <laughs> the plains of the united states passing it like a baton without collapsing it by the time it gets to los angeles i mean that's how how difficult it is to get a movie made of any quality let alone mm -hmm. a great one. So, yeah, once it's on the screen, though, and, and again, your vision has to be filtered then 
through a director, through the demands of the studio, through all of these things. And so if it gets to the screen halfway resembling anything that you uh, 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 close to your original dream is mm -hmm. a miracle. So I would say music because no, no one can stop me from writing a song. No one can, you know, uh, write the song that I can write. You know, um, everybody writes their own song. And, you know, as Dylan once said, um, you know, uh, I, write, I write songs because I need something to sing. And, and, you know, obviously, if you can't, you sing other people's songs and you make them your own. Mm -hmm. But for me, I needed to sing these songs and I needed to sing them about all these different things. So for me, yes, I would say music is, is I think, that my, my greatest opportunity to bring some joy and humanity into the world. Um, because there are so, but again, and again, I'm, I may be contradicting myself, so forgive me. I have learned in the last five years since I began this process of, 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 you know, reconnecting with my first love and actually getting the music into the world in a, in a real way, just how high the wall is mm -hmm. that is separating us from our audience. There is so much that goes into bringing music to your individual ears. So many mediators, so many middlemen and women, so many uh, obstacles, so right. many boulders in the field between you and your audience. I'm lucky that I have the resources now to, to help build the stream uh, bigger than just me. We're building a mm -hmm. record company and we're trying to you know, uh, build something in the indie world that's, that's real and viable. And that's Lapel um, Records, right? That's Lapel Records. Lapel and, Records, and check them a, out. I have a great young partner as well that uh, is a brilliant songwriter and musician in his own right. So, um, but, but I tell you, but, but now that I'm saying that, you know, the reason why this happened is my old drummer who played with Bowie and uh, you probably, you probably know the story, but it bears repeating. Um, he called me five years ago, almost to the day, it would be, it would be five years on February 15th, middle of a brutal winter in New York and said, I want you to come back to New York and make a record. And I said, I said, well, who, who cares about any record that I would make? I mean, then what? You just throw it up on iTunes for your friends and family? I mean, what's the point? He said, well, the point is just the music. That's the point. And for me, as a, I would say I am a, I have spiritual qualities, but I wouldn't describe myself as spiritual. Mm -hmm. And, but this felt like destiny to me. And one of the things that triggered it was that I was surfing a giant wave at Sunset Beach on the North Shore of Oahu. And the biggest day I had ever, ever surfed or ever since surfed. And I wiped out on this massive wave and it buried me in the darkness of Sunset Beach. I was underwater for about 20 seconds, which feels like an eternity when you're tumbling in the darkness. And uh, after being absolutely pummeled and I'm climbing up my leash. And it, strangely enough, as I was writing at the time, I was writing this movie called Chasing Mavericks and, and he climbs up his leash after a big wipeout, and I'm calmly climbing up my leash, thinking, you know, going to New York in the middle of a blizzard and uh, to make a record doesn't sound so bad right now. <laughs> Not as bad as getting ragdolled, huh? It sounds better than dying here. Uh, yeah. for, absolutely. So I went back, and we made the had the most joyous time, had the great all these great musicians made a bunch of tracks, and I and when I finished, I thought, well. 
I got really, really, really sad. Like I was like, oh, this is the most, I haven't had this much fun. It's my love. It's my passion. And now I got to go back to writing screenplays and <laughs> put my guitar away again because yeah. no one's going to listen to this music. No one's going to hear this. And then one thing, crazy thing led to another, courtesy of a legendary spy, got my music to Bob Dylan, and suddenly Bob Dylan was out in the world trying to get me a record deal. And that's a true story. And, but but the, the Dylan thing, even though Dylan failed uh, to get me a record deal, and much to his chagrin and anger, um, the fact that he, my, you know, uh, I, arguably the greatest American songwriter of all time, was willing to put his 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 opinion and his 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 taste on the line for someone that he had never met mm-hmm. in his amazing. life. That's amazing. Uh, then I just said to myself, you know, fuck it, I'm going to do this, whether anybody hears it or not, um, just because I have to and I can. And uh, here we are, you know. Yeah, that's uh, that is a great story. I remember when he told me not only Dylan but Yoko Ono also came by. Right, is that yeah, correct? Yoko yeah. and Sean chimed right. uh, quite accidentally. They heard the, the music at a friend's house that was also connected to this legendary spy. Yeah, these are kind of big names, you know, a little bit. Bob Dylan, yeah, well, people they, have heard I mean, of them. I got two pictures on my wall <laughs> in my office. I got John Lennon wearing a New York City t-shirt, and I got Bob. So yeah. it was like John from, you know, and, and what Yoko said when they uh, heard this one song, and I'll never forget it because I went, I, I, when, when I found out that Dylan had reacted the way he did and that had actually sat down and listened for an hour to five tracks twice and that mm-hmm. was willing to, to do this for me. I went outside uh, my house with my wife, Dana, and I just wept like a baby because, well, you know, it, it, it was just, it was everything that I had failed to achieve coming home and and landing on me like a, just, just, I, I'm not, this isn't even the right metaphor, but it was, it was an explosive moment of joy and I just cried. And then only three days later, uh, I found out what Yoko had said, which was that John would have loved it. And when I wow. heard that, wow. I just went back outside with Tana and cried all over again. So I thought, you know, if no one ever hears this shit, and I'm then, and I've had a lovely, lucky life um, by every stretch, uh, by every definition of the word. That's Maybe success. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. You know? That's wonderful. And, you know, speaking of Bob Dylan, I threw a quote in here to run by you for a couple of reasons. One, uh, to get you talking about Bob, but you've already done that, but really just to get a take on it, which he said, What's money? A man is a success if he gets up in the morning and goes to bed at night and in between does what he wants to do. Well, that's, yeah, that's, uh, I, I believe that. And, and I now believe, you're doing that, right? And now well, you're doing I, that. I, I believe that. I believe that, that, you know, there are a lot of geniuses in the world, right? I mean, there are, you, can, you can measure them, you can rate them, but part of genius is a way to figure out how to make your life out of what you love. And, and if you can do that, um, you may not be Einstein, but you're a fucking genius in my book. <laughs> Um, it's not easy to do, and he's absolutely right. And and I, it took me decades to come to the point where I could appreciate the wisdom of that statement. Yeah. 
You talked, I want to back up just to a minute because you mentioned chasing Mavericks and you mentioned um, getting pummeled in the water as a, as a defining moment for you, so to speak. So you are a surfer. And if you can, you're in the water how often? Almost every day? Well, it's a funny thing about why I became a surfer. I became a surfer very late in life, in my 40s. And mm-hmm. only because my wife, Dana, uh, saw the sadness and heartbreak that I'd experienced after putting my guitar away and bought me a surfboard, which as a Jew, I thought was a beautiful work of art. So I leaned it up against the wall of my office. <laughs> and I just thought Jews don't surf. I, you know, and, uh, um, but we moved to the, to the beach, this little apartment, nothing fancy, uh, years ago. And just we were renting this apartment, but it was right on the beach. And I thought, okay, you know, if it's now or never. So I walk into the surf shop in Malibu and I say, uh, am I too old to learn how to surf i was probably 45 Mm -hmm. 46 okay and they looked at me and they said yeah yeah do it anyway (sighs) so i went out so you did it anyway it was at first i put my wetsuit on backwards the first time which took half an hour to get into a dry wetsuit then it was on backwards oh you saw the zipper you saw the zipper and thought that must be in the front i i used to be a diver but it had been so long that i literally just put it i mean you know i'm an idiot i mean for anybody out there listening i'm I'm basically a glorified idiot but so i put it on backwards i'm exhausted now i've got to take it off and put it back (laughs) on again so it took me an hour before i got out of the surf shop and i'm already exhausted now i'm carrying this Uh. board it's november the water's freezing cold this is la where are you where are you uh malibu malibu Malibu. okay surf rider and uh i'm out there with this 19 year old kid who's teaching me and it's the (laughs) hardest thing i did some training in boxing i would say it was it 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 was as hard as that and so i don't get up on a wave on my first day and i'm i'm just miserable and exhausted but i decided i'm going to come back the next day and they're surprised to see me they thought this guy's not coming back (laughs) i come back I get up on my first wave and I'm suddenly standing on this cosmic uh, uh, curling wave of energy that's come thousands of miles just to carry me toward the beach. And I am in a state of bliss unlike any I could ever imagine for about three seconds before I hear a voice shouting at me and a board flies up and hits me on the left side of my face and, and just cuts a gash in my lip. And I fall off the thing and I wait, I get out of, I I pop up in the water and this Malibu brat, now I know them, they're a dime a dozen. Now I just laugh at them. But that guy was yelling at me how I got in his way on the last pathetic 10 yards of his silly little two foot wave. Um, And, uh, and he's, and he's screaming at me that I hurt his board and I'm bleeding. I'm gushing blood from my lip and my, my lovely young, uh, teaching instructor paddles up and says, uh, get the hell out of here. You're not going to pay for a sport. Just get the hell out of here. And he says, Carrie, you've got to get back up on another wave right away or you'll never come back. So I, mm. we, I stuck my head underwater, just let the freezing water kind of coagulate my, my lip. Right. And I caught another wave and I, and I ride it all the way in and I'm thrilled, right? So I get home. Yep. I got a package of frozen peas on the left side of my face. Yep, it's yep. Swollen, like I was stung by five or six bees. And Dana comes in. And this is one of the great moments that she and I have had. She does all the obligatory things. She sits down. My God, what happened? Blah, blah, blah. All that stuff that you need, you know, from mm-hmm. your loved one. And then she looked at me just like right through me. And she said, it feels good, doesn't it? 
Hmm. And I said, yeah, it feels good. She set the hook right there, didn't she? she it was like fight club moment. She yeah. understood what I needed. I, I did not need to be one of those Hollywood screenwriters with cigars getting in out of a fucking golf cart, you know, mm -hmm. uh, kicking their ball out of the weeds and trying to pretend they didn't guy. I didn't need to be that guy. Right. I hated it. And so I quit golf like cold Turkey because Good I was a writer. I started to surf and then I found a big wave surfer in Hawaii, badass. And I said, I want to surf the biggest, baddest, bluest, fastest waves I can. Just one little caveat, I don't want to die. That's it. <laughs> and so I started training like, like a crazy person, and we got a place in Hawaii, and I was just surfing waves that I never thought a Jew would surf, but not certainly <laughs> not this Jew. Right? Right, right, right. So that's, that's how... That I love that. I love that. that. And that. And that's done a lot for you. That's done a lot for you, right? Oh, yeah. The surfing. Yeah. Yeah. So my life. Yeah. Where on a personal level, you know, you said a, a moment ago that, you know, you have spirituality, but you're not a spiritual person. Obviously surfing for many people is, is a spiritual pursuit, right? On a, on a personal level, do you ever struggle? Where do you struggle uh, to be nice in your daily life? You know, what are some of your biggest failure points? You may not have any. Maybe you're perfect, but you know. No, no I think I think that um, I think the failures. I've had many, many, many failures. So many films that I that I that I believe in, that I love, that that I I killed myself to write, that I'll never see the light of day. Um, heartbreak. The the all the record all the record deals, all the failure to achieve the glorious you know, things that I had dreamt of achieving, that humbles you. And I think mm -hmm. that my narcissism, which was certainly um, uh, extremely active in my 20s and 30s and 40s, has now receded a, a great, great, great deal. I think now I am much more conscious of, of just, the, just the basic struggle of being alive, of... of mm. Uh, and 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 the stress and the, the 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 imposition of just succeeding in a in a in a very very stressful competitive world. My sense of other people who are doing jobs that you know are beating them to death, um, and what music means to them when they turn something on, how it elevates them, how it. Yeah, no, I, I um, little moments of kindness, you know, I mean. Uh, I I want to know who's um, I want to know who's you know packing my my groceries. I wanna I want them to feel like this is a human interaction. This isn't just them serving me. Um, I've never I'm a middle class kid, man. You know I I mm -hmm. see how some of the the super entitled rich that that have been rich for generations how they sort of treat the help. You know how they they just seem to. To, to sort of skate in a way where they almost aren't in the same room with the people who are serving them. Um, that, that mm -hmm. has a, that has always just twisted me up inside. I, I'm not comfortable with it. Um, uh, so I don't know if that's really answering your question. No, it, it's every, everything's an answer. It's fine. Um, we're just talking about this idea of, what you're talking about, I think, is connecting with people, right? And how, how easy it is for many people to not connect 
in the moment well, with in the, in the small interactions, right? Yes, that's right. But here's the other thing that I wanted to say that I re- realized I was just in uh, you know, my roundabout way trying to get to. Mm-hmm. But let me see if I can pin it down. Here we go. The difference now in what motivates a song is that I used to write everything was subjective. Everything was about me. And and it was uh, hopefully universal in that if I'm going through something, then so have millions of others. But but there was a, a, a narcissistic need to prove how good I was, to take over, to put punch my fist through the proverbial mm-hmm. wall uh, of people's attention, all of that. That's gone now. Um, now I, when I, now I feel more like an avatar, right? Now I feel, I ask myself, you know, is this song reflect a human experience that, that people need to hear? Um, and is it, does it have to be, it can be partially my, my experience, but I don't feel like it's about me anymore. I feel that old diva thing is gone. It's now, I just want the song or the story to flow through me, and I want it to have value in other people's lives. I want it to offer them comfort or wisdom or insight or entertainment or whatever it might be, um, and somehow elevate uh, their life. And um, I cry at everything now. It's like I, I cry at fucking comedies. I, I'm, I, I don't know what's happened, um, but I'm now so touched by simple, tiny bits of, of human experience. And especially now when we're going through this really dangerous, dark, uh, uncivil period with this, with this um, really bestial figure uh, now representing what it means to be an American. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a sh- such a shocking transition um, that, that I feel more than ever that I, that I don't want my songs to be angry. I don't want them to be, I want them to have plenty of room for people to breathe and to feel and to be human. I don't mm-hmm. want them to, I, they're not, you know, whatever rage I have, I don't want it to go into my music. You're not doing protest songs. No. What you are doing, though, let's get at your music a little bit, is you're, um, you're winning music video awards uh, with Billy Bob Thornton, and yeah, you have founded was, what... That was is, the angry song. Though. I know, still, it's a great song, but you've moved on from there, and, <laughs> and now you've got a new thing. It's, it's, kinda, it's pretty much a super group. You have members uh, of indie rock, uh, of, of yeah. Vampire Weekend, War on Drugs, Father John Misty, Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. I mean, that's a crazy lineup of musicians. Yeah. How did you get that? I mean, that's incredible. I I did my last gig at the Troubadour with playing a different family of songs, much more rock and roll. And uh, this kid who's had many deals himself, he's a Canadian, his name's Chris Chris Blood. Um, And uh, he... um, he is actually married to a, a young girl who is one of my goddaughter's best friends. And they brought him to the Troubadour, my last gig. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a pretty good gig. I wasn't that satisfied with it. Ultimately, it felt like, what am I doing? You know, it was one of those gigs where I'm, I'm playing for 400 people and that's all very nice. And, but, but then where is this going? You know, what, 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 what is going to become of this process? And he was there and he, he said, listen, uh, would you mind listening to what I have to say? And I was at the gig. I'd like to talk to you about your music. And he, it was very bold of him. Um, but I said, absolutely, man. And he said, listen, he said, 
rock and roll as a commercial genre is basically dead. He said, if you're Sting or you're Bruce or you're the Stones, you're playing for your fans and their, fan and, and their kids, but you are not really making an impact in the modern world of music commercially. You're not really selling records. You're not, you know, it's there. And, and you, Cario, as this guy with a guitar, you know, um, you may look pretty good and you sing, your songs are good and you sing good and all of that. He said, but you're still in that playing that in that genre. Mm-hmm. It still feels nostalgic. And that's not what he sensed I was really about. I wasn't nostalgic. I wasn't trying. I wasn't in some cover band where I'm, I'm doing the greatest hits of my youth. I wasn't interested in that. I was interested in putting vital new music into the world. And he said, I think you need to approach music differently. I think you need a different group of people. I think you need to become more eclectic in your musical palette. And you need to move away from that nostalgic corner of rock and roll. Um, otherwise, you'll never get out of that corner. Was that a bracing feedback for you? Or did you it was, accept yeah, it right it was, away? I, I actually I instinctually understood that he was probably a thousand percent right mm-hmm. immediately. And I was like, okay, I'm in. And first of all, kudos to him for having the guts to look me in the eye and tell Absolutely. me that. Um, and he's a brilliant, you know, I just, he's like, like my young brother now, but, um, that's I said, a tough okay. thing to do. You're, you're pretty, um, you're an imposing, you, you have a force to you. Uh, yeah, well, you know, I, I, I'm I, sure I, that I've tried to, to, I've tried to mitigate that over the years <laughs> a little bit because it, it doesn't, it doesn't resound to my credit because the whole point is to get the best people out of the best out of the best people. And mm-hmm. if they're afraid to tell you the truth, what, what are you getting out of it? You know, you're just you're ruling your own tiny little world, but to what end? So, so now you have, what, is it five songs on the EP? We have five, we have five, five songs, songs that came yeah. out just, what, yeah. three weeks ago, something like that, uh, on well, Spotify, five, Apple yeah, Music. On January 3rd, and the video came out on November 22nd. Um, right. We cleared the 33,000 uh, view mark organically, which is uh, a little milestone for us. Because for, you know, for which song and where can people find it? This is the um, this is a, the the single. The video is is for the single called "A Piece of Me," which was the first thing we released in November. And then the EP, which is self-titled "Cario," um, is and that is not "Cario," you know, about me. It's what we thought. We just use the name. And keep me kind of a mysterious, just member of the collective. You were we mentioned this. nowhere in the press material for this. Uh, basically, yeah. I'm listed as, <laughs> You're a, invisible as, man. as a band member, you know. Right. And that's the way, that was, that's, all, that's intentional. But you guys, know? you got to listen to this EP. You got to, first of all, watch the video, A Piece of Me. It's unbelievable. I, I really, it's one of my favorite videos and songs in a long time. Um, but oh, more than that, so if you're a fan of music, you'll hear the guitar. You'll, you'll hear a little bit of War on Drugs in here. You'll hear these other musicians uh, in this, this beautiful collection uh, with, obviously, with Cario uh, at the helm. It's definitely worth a listen. There'll be a link in the show notes here. Um, and so you have the EP out. What's next with that? You're pushing it now? Are you going to yeah. put an album well, out? Are you going to play live? What's the plan? We're in full-on promotional mode right now. We've got billboards, billboards here, everywhere, Williamsburg, and um, we're doing wild postings um, in uh, 
in the UK, we've got a little bit of a fan base building there. We're going to mm-hmm. do some in Nashville as well, where we're going to found the record company in Nashville. We founded it. It's it's an entity, but uh, Chris is the actually records. Moved, yeah, he's moving yeah. Uh, to Nashville, and we're going to found the Pell there and uh, build a roster of um, a select group of other artists that we really believe in in this indie world that we're that we're living in, and uh, we're going to go um, and make another record. Um, I'm, I've been writing a shitload of songs and we're now trying to, you know, what we do is you know, basically write 50 songs to choose five. And, and, and it's kind of like a, a, a like a, a, each song is like a gladiator and they're, they're sort of battling it out, see who's the strongest and the fastest and all of that, because you really have to be brutal with this. You know, you, you, we're, we're starting to get some love from KCRW. We have three DJs, uh, Jose, DJ Jose Galvan actually mm-hmm. a piece of me on Grammy night, February of last year. And, um, for, for me to be driving in, in a car and after all these years, all these decades, that's amazing. Finally hear my song on the radio was overwhelming. It mm-hmm. was just and they've been so supportive and that really put us over the top because kcrw is as many people know um the leading radio station for new music in the entire world so when they got behind it um you know it was a really significant so we are going to make another record but right now we're in we're in total uh promotion mode and you're you're pushing 60 now right and you're putting out your first record with all these guys all these young guns um how was it for you to all of a sudden have to co-write with other people had you done that before was it was it a letting go process i I didn't co-write i wrote all the songs myself but um what i did was what we did was create a a very safe creative space for people Mm -hmm. to bring their um, insights and their um, ideas to the table production wise. So um, while, while I wrote all the songs, we, we made room for them to, to uh, really make a musical impact. Um, Mm. And we honored each individual player by giving them points on the record. And we wanted them to know that this was, um, this was really a collective uh, idea. And um, um, you know, songwriting is, so so personal for me um i will co-write i'm sure in the future but right now it's um it's really just and then of course my relationship with chris he is kind of the executive director so we will we'll attack the songs and break them down and figure out what's working and what isn't long before we bring them in to to the band um Mm. and i'm hoping to work with many of these same players on the next on the next record but that's still um you know and what what you were asking earlier how we did all that it was really chris we reached out to a number of producers that we liked and we knew who their family musicians were and we also knew that in order for this project to become viable we needed to gather a group of people together that were significant in the world that we were trying to enter you know war on drugs and all of the bands that you mentioned these are these are the biggest bands in the indie music world so when when djs see that so-and-so mitchell yusida from edwin sharp or uh elijah from father john misty or john natchez from war on drugs is playing on the record they immediately pay attention oh they perk up yeah they perk up yeah, you know, 
So um, that was all strategic, really, and I, and we're happy with the results. Well, congratulations! I love it. I love the EP. Um, I love the songs. Uh, Los Angeles is the one that I'm currently kind of uh, is <laughs> an earworm for me. Um, oh, that's great! That's great. So, as you know, I'm a huge fan of of art and artists and musicians. Uh, I think most of us are. I'll take any chance I can get to promote them. So, can you think of anyone whose work you're just in love with right now? Musically, uh, painters, anything? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, uh, well, one is we're connected to, but he doesn't really need much support from me. But the, the, the man who's painting uh, Grace is the cover of EP is one of the best um, painters in the world. His name is Jules de Ballancourt. And I highly recommend any of his canvases are selling for four, half a million dollars. So he, he's, uh, he's doing just fine. But he's so original in his, in his perspective. And his, his work is otherworldly and, and, and just, just very mystical in a weird strength. Just, it's just marvelous. And uh, okay. full of color, full of, full of suspense, full of uh, dimension. And uh, so please go out and check Jules of Valancourt. And listen, in terms of, uh, of artists, uh, yeah, the indie world is super, super crowded. But I think for me, the band that, that I'm, that I continue to dig into over and over and over again, their entire catalog over the last 21 years, um, or the national. And, uh, you know, they just recently put out uh, another record. Um, there, you know, everybody out there knows the national, I'm sure, but I just think they're great. I just think they're, I do too. They're, uh, their songs are poetic and, and, uh, surprising and their production is extraordinary. And, um, I just, I think they're, I think they're the bee's knees. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of all the bands that, that my guys have played in as well. I mean, I, I really, really am. Um, you know, James Blake has a song out now that I think is pretty extraordinary. Um, there's just, there's a lot, there's just so much. That's the crazy thing. It, and that's what makes it so difficult is that there is, and most of these people are on major labels, right? Mm -hmm. Or major mini labels, you know, like the major indie labels. Um, there is so much music out there. There is so much, and it's and a lot of it's very, very good. And there are no longer these divisions and lines between genres. Everything's just getting mashed up. It's like a a mosh pit of of genres. Mm -hmm. And so, the idea of somehow penetrating that incredibly crowded maelstrom is daunting. Right. And I've learned so much in the last year about how one approaches that task of putting music into the world. Now, I feel like we have something original um, and that people will respond to. And that's that's the way you have to start. But boy, oh boy, it is it is not easy penetrating uh, the world because the world is so noisy right now, so crowded. There are so many demands on our attention, so many distractions, so many rabbit holes, and getting people to to look up and to actually listen and to pay attention um, is is um, it costs a lot of money. <laughs> it costs a lot of money. It costs it's a lot of cheap. money. Yeah, it's not cheap. It's <clears throat> not cheap. Yeah. So back to Chris's original assertion when he, he met you, what do you think? Do you think, you think rock and roll is dead or is it just taking on a new shape? Well, the idea, no, I think it, it dead in, 
I, I'm not going to be the one to say that. I think, but I do think that uh, that it's got to come from a, if it's going to be rediscovered, the energy of rock and roll is is still out there. It's in a million different things. I mean, you can find the energy of rock and roll in a Taylor Swift song. It's everywhere. Mm. It's just you can't necessarily lock it up and and say and put quotes around it. You know, you can't say okay, like the Stones. That's a rock band, right? You know, the Who. That's a rock band. Um, are, I think if there's going to be new rock and roll with that kind of attitude, it's going to come from another generation of teenagers and early 20-somethings who are reacting to a changing world in the same way that those cats reacted to it. And yeah, amen. Then, but they won't do it in the same – they may. That You know, punk – was a was a reaction to the progressive uh, 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 evolution of rock and roll that turned so many off. You know, it's like no, it's too many keyboards, it's too much, too complicated. Let's get back to D, C, and G, man, and 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 not really playing our instruments that well and going out on stage and and spitting and screaming, right? And yeah, it didn't it didn't always please the ear, but it led us to the Clash. You know, it led us to Elvis Costello. It led us to the next great reaction in rock and roll in the early 80s and beyond. Um, Let me throw out a definition of old age for you that, that you just sparked to see if you agree or disagree. Yeah. Uh, when you can no longer relate to that, that energy of the teenage musician, the teenage artist, that's when you're old. I, I agree a thousand percent. I, I think, I, and, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because there are so many in my peer group who have been very supportive of me and I, I'm not saying anything against them, mm -hmm. but there are very few who are in my peer group who actually listen to new music at all. They don't. They listen to their yeah. greatest hits yeah. um, or they, or they, you know, um, listen to classical music or whatever it is that they do, but they're not, they're not actively seeking out new songs. That starts when people are in their thirties, even in their twenties. You know, I used to call it uh, going gray. Even when I was in high school, That's I remember true. people I would, that. would just, would, they would lose something, you know, they would lose that thing, that connective spirit to their, their most vibrant younger self. And I would, I would, I would have people who were 1920 dismissively talking about high school kids. Oh, those high school kids. And it, it's, it's kind of the same thing to me. Right. That disconnection that starts so early. So two more things here real quick. One, yep. do you have a question for me? How the hell did you become yourself? That's my question to you. <laughs> that, that's a great question. That's another hour. Yeah, oh, man. Fascinating guy. Uh, um, well, it, it's it, been a work. It's a work in progress, just like with you. You know, it's, it's a lot to live up to the name, Todd. Uh, anyway. Yeah, it's, it's a great joke when I don't live up to it, which is like 80% of the time. Uh, it's, people use the term pretty derisively. That's okay with me. Um, how did I become? Well, you know, my parents, my family, my friends, my peers, basically I'm shaped very largely by my environment. And I feel like for someone who grew up in, in really small town, there's a, a narrowness to the way of life. And in some of that narrowness is beautiful. You know, we all yeah. grew up hunting and fishing and you learn these skills yeah. and I don't hunt or fish anymore, but I can, you know, so that's a right. beautiful thing. Right. And so I can relate to a lot of different types of people. And my mom and I moved around a lot. 
a lot. I went to 10 different schools between, you know, first grade and high school. I went to three different high schools. I think that moving a around a lot. Yeah. I do too. Uh, so I, I yeah, yeah, I know you can relate to that is, is part of what gave me an ability. It was good and it was bad. It was good because I learned eventually how to connect with people. It was bad because I was always the new kid. I was always getting in fights. I was always right. getting picked on. And I, I ended up be getting this um, really difficult attitude. <laughs> Uh, and, and it's been a real problem for me. You mean like a chip on your shoulder? Yeah. Like a chip chip on my shoulder, a lot of anger, you know? Um, and that's been something I've been working on for years that I used to think was my, my, my creative fuel. I used to think I needed that for Mm. my writing, for my, you know, photography, for anything that I was doing. It took me a long time to realize that, that it was, that wasn't really the fuel, you know? Um, and that it was okay to let go of that. Um, but that anger is a big part of me. And it's funny that you ask that. I don't know. I'll sum this up because you're more interesting than I am. But the Super Nice Club is part of my process. You know, I am not uh, remotely close to the Dalai Lama or, you know, even Richard Simmons, right? (laughs) I don't have a natural uh, ebullience or cheer. You know, I'm somebody that really needs to do the work, that needs to be nicer. Uh, And so I'm doing this. As as do I. Selfishly, because I'm learning from everybody around me. And it puts me in a position where uh, I can't possibly succeed. I'm always failing. People could call me out for so many things. They could say, you're the super nice club. You're an asshole, you know? So it's, it's always sort of a target on me. And I like that because it mm. really does make me question, what, what is nice? Is it just being, is it just, you know, um, lip service? Or is it a deeper work that I need to do? Um, so anyway, that's, that's a, a rambling well, I answer think, listen, you, but I think there are a lot of people who think they're nice, and um, they probably are in a superficial way. But then when you dig a little deeper, you find um, they're very sort of self-righteous or closed-minded. And um, I would rather deal with an open-minded asshole than a closed-minded nice person. Um, I want to deal with, you know, I want people who are, you know, who are mixing things up and, and, who, and mm-hmm. who aren't afraid to fail. And, uh, but for me, you know, for me, the biggest, the biggest act of niceness Mm -hmm. and also, which was, which has served me quite well in these, um, later years is just listening. Mm. You know, um, I'm a good talker, you know, I can, I can spin a tail and I can get, I can get on a soapbox with the best of them and start, you know, rattling the cage, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) to what end? And for me, I think if, if people are interested in, you know, what, what little thing can we do that makes the world 10% nicer, uh, which is your uh, brilliant idea, um, is just listen. And that's going to be, is that, that's your super nice challenge, right? So every episode, we have a super nice challenge that our guest issues to the listeners, something they can do that nudges the bar up a little closer to that 10%. So is that your challenge? Yeah, I, I would think. I, I think it's. I think it seems like a simple thing, like when you tell someone to breathe. But then, when you, when people re- start to focus on their breath, they realize they haven't really been breathing. And you know, I would say, I would say, uh, there's a, there's, yes, listen, mm-hmm. and breathe, because if you're breathing, and really breathing, really just taking a moment to breathe. 
you're opening, you're oxygenating, you are letting the world in. You are not, you are not stopping it. And you're not talking. <laughs> you're not talking. And, and, and I think that, you know, we're at this dangerous moment where truth um, is being um, slaughtered hmm. on it by the very mechanisms and people that we thought were going to lead us to the promised land. You know, the, the Facebooks and the social media and the internet mm-hmm. and all of it, is, mm-hmm. it has really turned on humanity. It's, it's, it's like the sorcerer's apprentice um, has, has turned it, uh, on its master. And so um, this is something very, very dangerous. And it's making, um, yeah, in many ways, it's never been a better time to be alive. I mean, certainly one can look through history and look at where we are now in terms of our health and, and freedoms and all of these things. And it's hard to find, in fact, you won't find another time in human history where there's been this much freedom and there's been this, mu- this many reasons to be hopeful. And yet, mm-hmm. and yet, and yet, there is a dark, you know, vengeful, psychotic kind of molecular weirdness that may be inherent in the human genome that has to rear its ugly head like the alien and devour itself every, you know, epic, every certain number of years, right? For no logical reason. It's just a kind of a collective psychosis. So Hmm. I think we need more truth. And if there's a way in an unself-righteous way that one can convey a little bit of truth to your neighbor, whoever that may be, um, and just listen and breathe. That's my super nice challenge. Well, I, I accept. I accept. And I think a nice thing for anyone out there is to just think about that. Think about listening and breathing, not just in, in real life, but also, like Carrie was just mentioning, on social media. When you see an argument or when you see something that you disagree with, take a step back. You know, it's, it's very similar to the, the what is the saying? Um, respond, don't react. If we could sum it up, respond, don't react. So think about that. If you have any insight, tell us how it went for you. Um, post some sort of proof if you can in your socials, tag us at Super Nice Club. And also, you know, tag official Cario. I bet you what, you'd be interested in, in some of this feedback, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So tag um, official Cario. Say, hey, man, I thought about this. Here's what happened. So that's the yeah. daily challenge. I hope you all follow Cario's musical adventures. Uh, Instagram, official Cario, K-A-R-I-O. Uh, Facebook, Cario. Stream the, the EP on your favorite streaming platform. There's links in the show notes for all of this stuff. Um, and by the way, to everybody out there who's um, going to check it out on Spotify if they want, it's all mm-hmm. capital letters. It's the easiest way to, uh, to get it because there are some other iterations of Cario out there in the, in the um, sphere. So you just have to put them all in capital letters um, and uh, you'll find it. Fantastic. Well, Cario, I want to thank you for being on here with us. Uh, oh, so so glad fun. to have you on. You're such an inspiration to me, uh, my friend, and a good friend. Thanks a lot. Uh, it was my pleasure, man. Uh, my pleasure. I, I wish you the success, uh, uh, great success with, with, with this. I do think you have a lot to, uh, to say and a lot to uh, share, and uh, that I could be part of this is, um, is, a, is a kick, man. I really enjoyed it.
Well, it's great for me to listen to you. You know, I did a lot of listening. It's, it's a challenge for me as well. <laughs> <laughs> so there you have it, folks. Our second Nice Work podcast. Your feedback helps us really improve. We're new to this podcasting, so we'd love to hear from you. Uh, the best place for that is either on Facebook, where you can message us at Super Nice Club, or find the post with this episode and comment there. You can also email Todd, T-O-D, that's just one D, at superniceclub.com. Please follow the Super Nice Club on Instagram or Facebook. That's pretty much how you become a member. That's where the nice stuff happens. That's where we organize everybody and, and try to get ideas and share thoughts on how to make the world a little bit nicer. And if you're looking for some sweet, sweet swag, superniceclub.com. That's it. Stay nice.